You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dinner was not chicken and dumplings. That would come later, when it could cook all day in the stew pot. Dinner tonight was a tuna casserole, a jar of mayonnaise, several large cans of tuna, a large bag of potato chips, and squares of American cheese on top. You've really gone all out, Galen said. Galen's mother was just setting the casserole on a hot pad in the center of the small table. The kitchen was tiny, and they were all elbow to elbow. You've used an entire bag of potato chips, Galen said. Do you have any idea how much salt that is? He was already starting to sweat, the cast iron stove emanating incredible heat. They had the windows and back door open, but that wasn't enough. Maybe it's time to throw away the white trash cookbook, Galen said. His mother grabbed his upper arm hard, pitching his skin, and yanked him out of his seat. Susie Q, his grandmother said, and his mother let go. He sat back down. Are we white trash, he asked. I'm never going to college, and none of us have jobs, and here we are out in the woods. Next thing you know, I'll be sleeping with my cousin which he is, of course, by this point. Stop, Helen said. Jennifer narrowed her eyes and then looked down at her plate. Maybe this was how he could have some power over her. Maybe she needed everything kept a secret more than he did. This isn't you, Galen, his grandmother said. Your grandfather designed a bridge in Sacramento. You're a Schumacher, and you can always be proud of that. Sorry, Grandma. A pile of mush on everyone's plate, the wilted potato chips golden and oily. Men are the problem, Helen said. First dad and now you. You won't talk to my son that way, Galen's mother said. Weren't you just trying to rip his arm off? He's not like Dad. But I thought Dad was perfect. I thought he drank lemonade and had lovely lunches under the fig tree. Isn't it good to be like Dad? What happened to that whole story? Your father was a good man, Galen's grandmother said. He worked hard all his life. Yeah, we know, Helen said. No, you don't. You don't seem to understand. He provided for all of us. I would rather not have been born, Helen said. Seriously, I would rather have skipped the entire miserable fuck job of a life this has been. Helen, I'm serious, and I'm not putting up with your lies anymore. Why are you giving everything to Susie? Why are you giving nothing to me and nothing to Jennifer? I want to know, Mom. Wow, Galen said. You can kick some ass when you get on a roll. Galen's aunt punched him in the shoulder, hard. She punched him again, looking him right in the eyes, pure hatred, and punched him again. He tried to block, but she was fast, and she hit hard. And then the strangest thing happened. Everyone looked away. No one said or did anything in response to the fact that his aunt had just punched him. His grandmother was humming to herself, looking down at her lap, and his mother was eating. Jennifer had crossed her arms and was looking down also. His aunt had gone back to eating. And what Galen realized was that this was the first time he'd been punched, but everyone else in this room must have been punched many times before. Or in his mother's case, maybe she had only been a witness to it, but a witness many times. Galen's shoulder was throbbing, but he served himself some tuna casserole and tried to eat a couple bites. The sound of the fire in the stove, popping of coals, the sounds of chewing and swallowing, wet and amplified, the taste of salt. Well, he said, I guess this is who we are. Would you like some more casserole, Mom? his mother asked. Thank you, yes, this is very good. Galen's mother made a show of serving the casserole, raising the spoon high. Tomorrow we'll have your chicken and dumplings, Mom. That will be such a treat. Galen could see his mother was the reconstructor of worlds. That was her role. When all fell apart, she stepped in and made time move again. Tomorrow we can take a walk down at Camp Sacramento, she said. Oh, that will be nice, his grandmother said. I'm still waiting for an answer, Mom, Helen said. Would you like some wine, Mom? Galen's mother asked. Yes, please. Galen's mother stood and turned to the counter beside the stove. There was no space in this room. The five of them bunched around three sides of a tiny old table that was built into the wall covered in a yellow plastic tablecloth, the walls on even planks painted white, a single bare bulb with a chain, the floor a faded brown linoleum, the stove like a furnace, all their faces wet with sweat. Galen's mother opened a bottle of white wine, Riesling, and the smell brought Galen instantly back. She poured glasses for herself and her mother and didn't offer it to anyone else. The two of them drank and ate while Galen and the mafia watched, and Galen wondered why they were all together here. What's the point of trying to be a family, he asked. Why are we doing it? Galen's mother sighed and downed the rest of her glass, then refilled it. Galen's grandmother was staring at her own wine with a kind of wonder. She had rested it nearly empty on the table, just beyond her plate. The stem between two fingers, she was swirling it gently, 
her hand facing downward, open, as if she were waving her palm over something, as if the table were a looking glass and the wine upon it a kind of golden key. She looked mesmerized, her blue eyes wet and large, her lips moving slightly, as if she were reciting some invocation, something from long ago, something none of the rest of them would understand. She seemed about to announce something, and this was what kept the rest of them silent. The bare bulb and its harsh light made it seem that if you removed his grandmother, you'd have to cut her from the fabric of the world, and there'd be a hole left. Each of them felt that way to Galen, as if all were two-dimensional, flattened, and lodged in place. Jennifer, with her arms still folded, looking down, unmoving, stationary, his mother with deeper lines around her mouth than he had noticed before, as if her lips were separate from the rest of her face, something added, her eyes buried in sockets too large, the waves of her hair something sculpted and not attached. She looked fabricated, put together in pieces, invented. Galen felt the unreality of her, felt it for the first time as something immediate and undeniable. She raised her glass again to her lips, but even that movement was jointed. The world put together was some kind of ratcheting action, each piece pulled into place under tension, all of it threatening to snap. Galen wanted to leave. He wanted to get away from this table. This table felt extremely dangerous. He understood now that what held his family together was violence. But he was locked here, glued in place, unable to move. He could only watch, and the only movement was his mother's glass, and his grandmother's glass, and palm moving in its slow circles, and the wavering of the light. David Van is the author of the nonfiction work A Mile Down, the true story of a disastrous career at sea. He's the author of a short story collection, Legends of a Suicide. His first novel was Caribou Island. He's the author of Last Day on Earth, a portrait of the NIU school shooter. His new novel is Dirt. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. David, Herman Hess has a lot to answer for, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) He does indeed. I read Siddhartha many times in high school, and I I do think that it... uh, it warped me in, in some way. <laughs> Maybe not in the, the happiest or most use, socially useful of ways. Yeah, I loved that book, and I loved all the Richard Bach books and Carlos Castaneda's uh, fake anthropology. And uh, I used to go to Betty Bethard's uh, to her readings and, and was sort of her protege, wanted to become a mystic. And I did firewalking and relaxation and meditation and all those things in the early 1980s up to about 1985 or so. Uh, so it was really fun to write something set in that time period and use that material because I was a true believer. I, not only did I firewalk and meditate and all that, but I actually tried to walk on water over and over, went crashing into mountain lakes and hot tubs throughout California, <laughs> believing that this time my feet may hold. Well, I have to say, having had this novel published, you've done something more difficult than walking on water. (laughs) This is a very dark, a very creepy, (laughs) and and a very funny novel for uh, those of us who adore psychologically twisted madness. (laughs) And what I love about this is, no matter how over the top it seems and how weird it gets, these characters seem very real. They seem like people you might know if you had very, very bad luck. Yeah, I, it's funny. I don't view any of my characters as being crazy in any of the books, with the exception of the nonfiction book about the school shooter. By the end, he goes pretty far off the charts, the, the real person. But my fictional characters, every once in a while, someone will say that the, the characters seem crazy or that I write about madness. Uh, to me, they all actually make sense. They, they all have their reasons, and we can see why they are the way that they are. But I do love a tragedy. These are people who are colliding against each other until they break. And, <laughs> and so they don't have the nicest moments with each other, and they don't act in the best way possible. I think they are fairly well broken. This is like a novel of, of drinking uh, broken glass <laughs> cocktails. <laughs> true. Uh, I love the sense of place in this novel, and I think that's what gets us right to the center really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think believe this is a place you're familiar with from your youth. Yeah, that's right. This is It's set in a walnut orchard in Carmichael, which is a suburb of Sacramento, and that's where my, mother's, my mother uh, grew up. Her parents had a, an old white house, two-story big house, with 10 acres of walnut orchard alongside it and some other big trees and grounds and a long driveway with hedges on either side. And it was very strange because there were subdivisions all around. So it was the last undeveloped piece of land in in that area. 
And so I have these great childhood memories of, of being in that walnut orchard and under the giant fig tree and oak tree and being kind of secluded from the rest of the world. So it was a perfect place or play, perfect setting dramatically in that it's a, it's a limited stage with the rest of the world locked out. There's no distraction or interruption. They, they're in their own little enclave there. And the landscape is where I kept focusing when I was writing, the same as I did with Caribou Island, which was set in Alaska, and Legend of Suicide, also set in Alaska. I just kept returning to describing the place, and that place became crazy in its, in its description. The, the, the orchard itself would shift and change shape and indicate the inside life of Galen or the other characters. And each day I didn't know what they would do or say or where the book was going. I had no idea that what happens by the end would happen in this book. Uh, but I blame the place. It all came out of this burning, hot, hellish kind of landscape. And any craziness that's in there is really because of the heat, I think. Uh, I love the how uncomfortable this landscape is. It's a place you really just don't want to be. And as you say, it, it reflects the characters. There are people you kind of don't want to be around. It's dirty. It's it's filthy it's just it's unky <laughs> yeah yeah uh galen really embraces the dirt and mm -hmm. and rolls around in it naked covers himself with mud decides never to live in a house again or um wear clothing again at various times most of the uh conflict uh between galen and his mother actually originates in an earlier dirty thing which is a, a terrible bit of family history, um, so not actual dirt. You know, the, the title comes from that Galen begins to meditate on dirt. He thought that his meditation would be water, like Siddhartha's meditation in Hermann Hesse, but instead he finds that dirt has been there all along, and, and it's his meditation. But in the background of the book is this really awful family history of, of violence and favoritism and fights over money and such. Now, I, I love the kind of the sense of suffocation in this book is that even though you're in this kind of this open landscape, the trees are looming overhead. You get the feeling there's dirt on the leaves and everything's kind of packed in and you have this very limited palette of characters. And did you know you were only going to use this many characters? It's almost like a stage play and I bet you could probably stage it as such. Yeah, I... It was really interesting to me that this moves closer to Greek tragedy. And, and the next book, Goat Mountain, which I finished and will come out a year from now, moves even farther in that direction. And so this was very strange for me to, to, to see the novels take the shape. I really didn't plan to write this book. I was writing something else set in Anglo-Saxon England a thousand years ago. And then one day I just started writing this. And five and a half months later, there it was. And, and Dirt is actually published almost exactly the way it came out in the first draft. I added maybe three or four paragraphs to help explain stuff that my editor asked for, and that was it. It, it pretty much, um, you know, just, just comes out uh, that way. That's amazing. The prose is really uh, fabulous in this because it's um, I, uh, kind of Faulknerian. You evoke this sense of place, and it's, it's kind of dirty and gritty in this deep time. We feel the past of this place, the past of this family. And so this prose just rolled off the tip of your typewriter? Yeah. Yeah, it was just each day I, I'd take an hour to read through the previous material and then write for an hour, and the two pages would happen during that hour in kind of quick flashes. And then it just was what it was. It's not something I could revise. I couldn't actually go back and, and change it at all. And I think partly it's because what you were saying, that it's, it's like a play, like a stage play. It's only five characters over about ten days in two locations. And it takes place almost in real time. The only time that we skip is when Galen sleeps. We'll skip a few hours. But other than that, we pretty much get to see every moment. And so what happened had this feeling of inevitability about it to me. It's not something where I could go back and revise and, and change it. This is just what happened. And, and really everything that happens between the characters is generated out of the book. No outline, no plan, uh, no idea where it was going. And so it... It was almost like I used to do improv theater, and it felt like improv theater in that we just had these characters with their problems 
in this place that was putting pressure on them, and then stuff happened, and then that's just that performance is what it is. It's it's a very powerful performance, and you managed to to do something very interesting in that it's really creepy and kind of you just go, oh, these people, they're so awful, but it's also very funny. And, and <laughs> although you have to have... Yeah, I always crack up when I think about the book, actually. <laughs> uh, I think it's the only like truly funny book I'm probably ever going to write. And it's funny because of all those things I believed, that I really did believe them, that I was a true believer. And it's funny because philosophy ultimately leads to brutality in the book. And and there's this so there's this awful awful underpinning to the humor, and I think that's what makes it funny. I think I think humor is often a bit vicious or mean in in some aspect. And in this case, where that comes from is making fun of my earlier self, but also my rage and disappointment at losing that world. I think because when I was new age and I believed that the entire world revolved around me. That, that I was at the center and other people weren't quite real. They were just teaching me lessons that I was learning in my life. That, that was intoxicating, and, and it, was, it was awful to leave it. And that's why I felt so angry at the New Age afterward, is that I, I had lost this animated world. And so I think it's so funny for me, this book, because it's, it's, uh, it comes out of, a, out of a loss, out of a kind of tragic loss, and yet it's something that... I just can't believe I was that person and, and believed those things. So the combination of those two uh, make the humor, I think. Well, I love that, how that sense of self-absorption, uh, Galen's sense of self-absorption, really does slide into solipsism. And, and mm-hmm. that's so interesting because it, it, you make that happen for us by showing everything from Galen's point of view. And that is a really interesting uh, uh, experience for the reader. Yeah, it could feel a little myopic after a while. It's strange. You really are immersed in his world, and it, and it's just it's really locked in closely to his point of view, which is how the New Age movement felt to me. It's the perfect American religion, the New Age, because no one's a member, and and it's all about the individual, and the other people aren't quite real. It's so perfectly American. You have to love that. And so the book, I think, should feel a little bit like that. It should feel myopic, like we're too locked into one person's point of view, because that's everything about the New Age movement is that way. This is a, I thought, you know, um, if they were pitching this novel differently, they could call it a novel of passive aggression. It's true. I think that most novels actually have some aspect of that. But yeah, I I I, I do come from uh, some champions of passive aggression on both sides of my family, and I've channeled <laughs> bits of that. There, there's definitely uh, just full blown rage at various points mm. in the book oh, between absolutely. the family members. They don't hold back uh, at, at points. Uh, it simmers for a while and then it breaks. Well, that's uh, at the uh, end of your reading. Uh, your uh, Galen thinks what held his family together was violence. <laughs> yeah, in my mother's family, uh, I don't know the truth. I don't really know the story, what happened, and I feel bad for my mom and aunt and others in my family for having a writer in the family. It, it's it's um, I wouldn't wish it on anyone to have a writer in the family because all of your stories in the past that are filled with shame are out there for all to see and to read in many languages. And they've also been distorted into monstrous shape. They've been made even worse than they were in real life. And the truth is, I don't know what happened in real life, but I think that my grandfather beat my grandmother. That was the story I was given at various times. And then at other times, I've been given other stories that maybe it wasn't so much like that. And I, and I think that's the shame and the cover-up. But I don't know. So... Uh, so I shouldn't say that any of this is my family history. It's what I think might be some of my family history lurking there in the background. And, and what it's about, really, that, that history is that the violence ends up passing down to the other generations in various ways. So it, the, the father beating the mother ends up leading to favoritism, picking one daughter over the other because one daughter is willing to be cute and stand in as the peacekeeper. And then after that favoritism between the daughters, 
there was also there were also fights about money in in the book um, and in in my family in real life things haven't come to the surface as much as they do in the book but but I was writing about stories that I'd been wanting to write about for a long time. It's actually based on the second short story I ever wrote uh, 25 years ago. And so I think this material was waiting, sort of lurking in the background, and that it was inevitable I'd write it. And so it makes sense to me that I would just start writing it one day, and then five and a half months later, there it would be. That explains the sense of past in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a very Faulknerian sense of the past in, in this book, and and one of the things that uh, I thought was so interesting, and I'm not sure how much uh, this you do on purpose or how much just just came out of your subconscious, was it seems like you're kind of playing with the reader's perception of your intent as you write this. We kind of are wondering, what the hell is he on about? <laughs> and and it, it seems like you you use that very well to to kind of keep us going back and forth. That's in a sense almost a plot driver in the book. My editor was actually questioning early on whether the book was in support of the New Age movement or not. You know, is. Does the narrator, does the narration join Galen and his views at various points, or is it only critical of those views? And to me, it was it was all one dream. It, it all is one piece, mm-hmm. and and it both creates and recaptures that kind of view of the world, and also shows its flaws. And it's a uh, I think probably an uneasy experience reading it mm-hmm. at, at some points, wondering if uh, if the author shares these views or not. It wouldn't be clear at some points, maybe. Right. Well, I, I wasn't thinking so much whether you shared the views, just how, how, how you were kind of just playing with us in terms of it. It's very creepy. I mean, it's one of the more creepy novels I've read. Mm-hmm. And there's a we do get a good sense of how far out to lunch Galen is when he describes uh, why he can't go back to the to the bookstore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At that point, you realize, <laughs> okay, the, the, the hinges done come off that door. <laughs> yeah, I wanted Galen to be uh, entirely likable and the reader to be on Galen's side. But what happens is is barbaric. And so if you do side with Galen as... I think most readers would, that you start to automatically side with the protagonist in a novel, you end up being lured into a kind of barbarism, which could again be a bit uncomfortable. Uh, one of the things I love, too, is the, the family dynamics in this, in this book. So talk about creating this little family uh, with, and tell us who the mafia are and, and, and uh, about uh, Grandma. Sure. Um, the... The grandfather is dead, who was the abuser. The grandmother is in perfect health, except that she's lost her memory, um, suffering from, uh, uh, as my grandmother did in real life, from dementia, and, and starting to lose things so that it's possible to have the same conversation with her five or six times in a row in the same day, for instance. Uh, but a very pleasant, likable person. And... The, her two daughters, Susie Q and Helen, Susie Q is the, the peacemaker and the favored daughter, and for her, everything is always nice, and she's trying to have them just be nice, uh, but is, is fake and, and living a kind of lie and uh, driving everyone around her crazy, basically. And Helen, the, the older daughter, is filled with rage, uh, because she's not the favored daughter, and because she wants the grandmother held responsible. She wants her mother held responsible for what happened, but her mother can't remember anymore, and her sister is denying that anything bad ever happened. So Helen, the disfavored sister, is really the engine of rage in, in the book. And then her daughter, uh, Jennifer, is uh, very appealing to Galen, who's 22. Jennifer is 17, and 
Jennifer teases him in, in various ways and is essentially bored, doesn't like hanging out with the family, and is over everyone, is, is, is uh, completely disillusioned, uh, and Galen's falling in love with her. Now, one of the things I think that <clears throat> this novel does really well is to um, give us a, a sense of, you know, this kind of uh, the sense of the past and how the, the family's past reaches through. And there's a great line in, in there uh, where um, the grandmother says, it because she's losing her memory, she says, it's like being no one. You think you're someone now, but it's only because you can put your memories together. And I think that's mm-hmm. an interesting sense. That that sensibility permeates the book and the, the past as you know in Faulkner's mm-hmm. great quote it's not it's not the past it's not over and it's not even past and, and I think that's <laughs> yeah. certainly the case here yeah each one of them needs to to put together what has been what has happened in the family to understand themselves but Galen in, with his new age beliefs is essentially in denial of the reality of any any kind of past. If other people are just here to teach us lessons, the whole idea that they have past lives and, and histories, all, all of that is an illusion. Within the New Age movement, history doesn't actually exist. It's it's all illusion. You, you're born into, you actually chose. I mean, it's this obnoxious that you chose to be born into your particular time and with your particular parents. So if you're going, growing up rich in Marin County, that was your, your choice you made. And if someone happened to grow up in a, a war-torn nation where they had their limbs blown off at age nine, that was their choice. Those are the lessons that they wanted to learn. I mean, it's so awful and creepy, truly. The New Age movement, it couldn't be more hideous. And, it, and it's so perfect for people with money who are white living in easy lives in nice areas. Um, so, in, in the book, um, Galen is in denial of the past. Helen wants the past to be remade. She wants to be compensated. Uh, she wants uh, reparations. And uh, her sister, Susie Q., Galen's mother, is in denial that anything bad ever happened. So there, there's a lot of fighting about history and the existence of real people, including each other. Yeah, there's a great scene and this book, too, speaks to a very current sense of self-absorption. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, that, you know, you just, you, this kind of uh, solipsistic new age beliefs are just our current sense of self-absorption turned up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. All the speakers are on 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, well, Tell us a little bit about some of these. Uh, there's a term in there that, that I wasn't familiar with, uh, samsara? Yeah, samsara, suffering, okay. um, our attachment to the world. So we think of it in, in easiest terms as desire and sex and gluttony, food, uh, things like that. But it's actually all of our attachment to the world, anything that would hold us in place. So any belief that other people are real or that they matter or that we have families or that there's any point or purpose to what we're doing, or uh, business interaction, or sexual desire. Any, all of that is samsara. And so Galen's trying to, to separate himself from all of it. And as the book progresses, it becomes clear that his mother is his last attachment. And he'll finally need to separate from her. He'll need to be able to essentially believe that she's not real and doesn't exist in order to be able to transcend that transcendence uh, takes an <laughs> a rather entertaining form. Now, uh, <laughs> one of the things that, that I think uh, you do really well in this book is humor. And you use some kind of, you know, there's some very intentional humorous parts, some riffs in there. And I love the pumpkin pie riffs. So talk a little bit about... Yeah, some of it's just repetition. Repetition is actually the easiest form of humor, but oftentimes I find the most funny. So... The grandmother likes uh, pumpkin pies, and they've squirreled her away in a rest home. Uh, but she used to always talk about Bel Air, a, a supermarket in Carmichael, about their wonderful pumpkin pies. So now, every time they're driving anywhere past there, Galen will always say to his mother or his mother and aunt, 
Um, Bel Air has the most wonderful pumpkin pies. It's been so long since I've tasted pumpkin pie. And what he's doing is fighting with his mother. At every point, Galen and his mother are in battle, in pitched battle. And when he says this, he's, he's uh, hurting her with the fact that she's put her mother away in a rest home. So every time he talks about pumpkin pie, it's to remind her that she's, she's locked her mother away. And now the grandmother will never taste pumpkin pie again. But it does come up three or four times. And I have to say, I enjoyed it. You know, we're having a lot of fun talking about this book and laughing. And I think that some of the, uh, a, a fair segment of readers might read this book and just go, oh, my God. Those people need to be put away. <laughs> there was one review on Amazon which was titled, "You Oh, you dirty boy, you dirty, dirty boy, or something. <laughs> which I thought was very funny. And uh, I think that some people uh, will, you know, just find it dark or, or uh, ugly, of course. But I, I, I love tragedy. I, I, I think that there's something invigorating about reading people whose lives are falling apart and who have gone too far in their beliefs and gone too far in their relationships and and have passed the point of no return where you won't be able to come back and make peace from this. Because it's something that we all fear in our real lives with our families. <laughs> we come close to those edges. And so there's some satisfaction, I think, in crossing over the edge a little bit in fiction <laughs> and getting to have the knockdown drag out. Um, so I, I, I find it refreshing. I, I like to read tragedy. Well, and <clears throat> you mentioned Greek tragedy, and, and this really, we know this is Greek tragedy going in like on about the third page. <laughs> um, Galen refers to his mother's lovely smile, and you just think, whoa, that's creepy. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Greek tragedy, the, the characters uh, fall apart because of their own flaws. So there's no threat from outside. There, there are no neighbors who come in in this novel dirt and cause havoc for the family. All the threat, all the danger, everything that's ugly comes from inside the characters. Yeah, and every character is their own undoing, isn't it? You know, I never thought mm -hmm. about that. Each one of them enacts their own doom, which is what I love about Greek tragedy. <laughs> what I also love about Greek tragedy is that none of the people actually intend to hurt each other. Theoretically, these are the closest people they have in their lives. These are the people they love. These are the people they want the best for. And yet, just because of who they are, because of their own flaws and the nature of who they are, they end up ripping each other to shreds. And I love that about Greek tragedy. It, it's, it strikes me as, as an antidote to our easy villains that we have in movies and such where all the threat comes from the outside. When threat comes from the outside, it just doesn't engage or do anything. You know, it, it's not about anything if, if someone gets hit by a truck or, or the neighbor comes over and starts fighting. You know, that's that's a really interesting perception. Um, when you were putting this together, uh, there's a, a lot of, you know, there's a, at first an undercurrent, and then there's actually rises up sexuality, and there are erotic scenes, and there's all sorts of really weird stuff that's sometimes, you know, slightly erotic, and then sometimes just totally upsetting. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to talk about... You know, creating these as a writer, I mean, as you're writing this, isn't this, you know, kind of hard to write? Yeah. I, the name Galen comes from my best friend Galen in high school, and the character is a blend of him and me. Mm -hmm. And Galen first had sex when he was, I think he was like 25 or so, and he had the best comment about it. He, he told me that he lost his feet. That was his comment about having sex. He lost any sensation of his feet. <laughs> and I just thought that was great. And so in, the, in one of the scenes where uh, Galen is having sex with his cousin Jennifer, uh, he loses the sense of, of feeling in his feet. And he's also very meditative about the whole thing. He feels his crown chakra opening, and he wants to feel it for a moment. She's, of course, very impatient and wants him to get moving. And uh, she also hates the sound of his voice, and she tells him that. 
as they're having sex and he's talking. You know, I hate the sound of your voice. And I loved, I guess, the anti-romantic aspects of, of the sex, especially since Galen is, is so hypocritical, as I was when I was New Age. He's trying to transcend and be free of samsara, but he realizes if he could have sex with her every day, that's what he would do. The transcendence is only a consolation prize for those who haven't found good enough samsara. <laughs> so, so it was fun. It was fun to write those. You know, it was. It was uh, I mean, the whole book is is very self-critical of of who I was during that time and who I still am. Because it's not that I moved on and became not that person at all. I stopped having those beliefs, but I still have all those characteristics. I still have the desire for those same beliefs, and I still have all the same flaws. One of the things, too, that's interesting about this book is the way you use close focus to, you know, create mood, create tension, create atmosphere. It's Mm -hmm. like if you take a, if a director moves the camera really close enough to su- an actor where they can see the pores on your nose. It's, yeah. it's just like, I don't care how good looking you are. It's just yeah, not and be that gone. close focus is mostly on the landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, Galen's lying in the furrows and looking at a plant there that, that's odd and strange and seems to come from another world, something he hasn't noticed before, something unlikely uh, uh, lush and... Uh, uh, and kind of velvety and not something you'd expect in this dry environment. And uh, he's looking at shadows carefully and in, in, in the orchard and, and ants and you know, all, all kinds of things. So there's a lot of close-up focus where I just described what he would see. And, and the book, much of the book came from that. The mood, as you said, came from that. And a lot of the momentum and action. I think that landscape description, which is only about landscape, would be incredibly boring. But what landscape description can do is be a blank slate for the unconscious. It's, it's where everything odd and creepy about who someone really is fills in. It, how they see the landscape tells you about who they are. And so at each point, the landscape is described in detail. And really, that's describing in detail the interior life of the characters. The prose in this is really amazing. Thanks. It, it, because it... It reads like lightning, and that's kind of surprising, uh, given the kind of Faulknerian aspects of it. And you know, it's not like an action-packed thriller. Where, <laughs> but <laughs> on the other hand, it reads faster than most of those. And and you have a unique style where you don't use a lot, most punctuation. You eschew punctu- uh, quotes mm-hmm. and and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about uh, creating that style because you've been working on this for a while, and I think you've really interiorized it to this point. Thanks. I I, um, I do cut out grammatical morphemes, the the crappy little words that hold a sentence together, as much as I can. And I also oh, interesting. I also cut out um, verbs. I use a lot of sentence fragments that are uh, just have the noun and not the verb. And I try to make everything heaped up boulders of content as much as possible. I just try to eliminate grammar. And that goes back to uh, Old English poetry, which I, I'm reading every day and studying Old English, the, our Germanic language from a thousand years ago before French was blended in and, and created Middle English and Chaucer and such. So a lot of my favorite writers do this too. Annie Prue and Cormac McCarthy focus on, on the Germanic side of the language They'll put their adjectives after their nouns, for instance. They'll cut out verbs and grammar. They'll use paired heavy stresses from Old English meter. So I am doing that a lot in in the language of this book. And, and the reason is that what I want Galen to have is a direct apprehension of the world. I want him to take in the world in, in chunks of, of content without a lot of arrangement and mediation. And so I think there's a quickness to that. That, that that it's a it's a kind of stampede. It reminds me of something uh, a science fiction writer I talked to uh, named Rudy Rucker calls life blogging, which is just you know using your eyes like a camera uh-huh. and, and getting rid of everything else. Right. Yeah. So I I um I also the scenes the chapters are fairly short. Mm. It's a fairly short book. Uh, at each point, there's something terribly wrong, which is going to get worse within the next couple of pages. 
And what I tried to do was offer a little bit of crazy about every two pages. Like every single day when I wrote, I was essentially hoping and looking for crazy. And I loved that. It was really fun. You know, some way in which the landscape shifts and changes shape and, and says something insane or some bit of, of explosion between the characters where one of them just goes off. You know, it, it was, uh, I never knew what was going to happen each day, but I knew that that it wasn't going to be a walk in the park, basically, that, that, that it was a hunt for crazy. You know, you have a really interesting sense of drama in this book, too. And it's it, it, the way the, the, the plot moves and the way the characters interact has this very, you know, it's like uh, knots of tension. It's like um, what happens when you get like a muscle cramp. This book mm-hmm. is like a, a 220-page <laughs> muscle cramp. <laughs> Thanks, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've, I've studied uh, drama a lot and thought a lot about dramatic structure. And it, it's basically a, a distillation. There, there's no time for all of the incidental parts that happen in our real lives, in our daily lives. We usually have thousands of moments that are essentially meaningless for everyone that, that is meaningful. But in a book, really there's no room for anything that, that isn't uh, cohesive and doesn't fit into this paranoid world of fiction. When I said I was going after craziness, essentially all fictional worlds are crazy. They're, they're the same as the New Age world that I lived in, where everything is meaningful and everything refers back to the protagonist. It's the same as that, that story by Nabokov, Signs and Symbols, which I think we've talked about in a previous interview in another book, where the boy has a mental illness called referential mania, where he believes everything refers to him. When the clouds move over in the sky, move across the sky, they're saying something about him personally. And that's the world that every protagonist lives in fiction. Everything in the book, including the existence of the other characters, does refer to the protagonist. And so I loved that double layer to the book, that Galen believes that other people have come into his life only to teach him lessons, that the whole world refers to him, which is not true for us in the real world. But for Galen, since he's the protagonist of a novel, actually it is true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tell us a little bit about the extent of, did you... When you were, you did no prep for this novel. I'm just curious. So the the new age beliefs that inform this novel are all just based on your own experience. They're did all you? just buried in me because I, I was I was a true believer. I mean those uh, those will never leave me. They're they're just a part of who I am now. When I mean I can remember this? parts of all the books. And everything. <laughs> now, uh, how old were you when you first encountered uh, these uh, beliefs, and how did they capture you? Well, my dad killed himself when I was 13. And the years after that, I had this kind of double life where I was shooting things and and didn't talk with anyone about what happened. I, I told everyone he died of cancer. And so at the end of that, I came out of that when I was about 16. And so it was probably from 16 to 18 when I was in drama. And it probably started a little earlier because it was my mother who gave me New Age books and my godmother I grew up in this family with all women, and all the ones in California were interested in the New Age. So um, it was helpful as a kind of therapy. And and the New Age helped me a lot, actually, in that way. And meditation, I think, was very useful. And and I don't think meditation was baloney. There there was something useful about sitting and being still for a while uh, each day. But uh, I definitely took it all too far. You know, I, I... (laughs) <laughs> went far too far. So it lasted, it, I was deprogrammed when I went to college. I, I went to Williams College. I had a religious studies class and a history of science class in which I tried to defend pseudoscience, and, which is what all this would be called in a history of science class. Now, what, did, what pseudoscience did you try to defend? All the New Age sort of stuff. And I, I can't remember exactly what I talked about in the paper, whether I talked about firewalking or, or meditation or, or what it was. But, but I was in, simultaneously in a religious studies class where I was having to write about what is religion and looking at anthropological theory. And in a history of science class where I was having to talk about how is this science, uh, which of course it isn't. So uh, the, I was de- deprogrammed because of those and it was one of the worst years of my life because not only did I not have friends because I was so weird and came from California and was all new age 
and I was on the school on the East Coast where they thought I was a total freak. But also, I was losing those New Age beliefs, so I didn't have them as a prop anymore either. So I really had nothing. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible year. To lose your faith is one of the worst things that can happen. That's a, Now, I have to ask you, how did you experience your faith? Did you experience it like as a, as a dialogue within yourself? Did you like, was there a part of you that was like outside living your life and another part maybe that was you or not you that talked back to you? I, I don't think of it as a, as a divided self in any kind of way. It was, I mean, it's hard to go back. It's hard to remember how your brain used to think once you move on to a different sense. And I actually remember this in 10th grade realizing that once I switched all of my friends and everything I was doing, after the three years of telling everyone my dad died of cancer, and once I was now telling them the truth that he died of suicide, I remember thinking that my brain was different and that I couldn't remember my brain from six months before. I couldn't remember even at that point how I used to think. And so I do think that all of our previous selves are essentially lost to us in that way. And I don't know that I would ever be able to go back and remember uh, what it was like, but I but I remember a, a sense of excitement about uh, my life as a, as a kind of text that all fit together and was meaningful, that each person I met or each thing that happened had this special sense of significance, that, that it, was all, uh, it was all adding up, and I was becoming something grand and, and wonderful and powerful. You know, there, there was a, an intense sense of... Um, of, of entitlement, really, of, of sort of the world is mine. I think that's been subsumed into your sense of story. I mean... Yeah, when, when I write a novel, I'm creating exactly that kind of world. Basically, I can't live that kind of world in my real life. So now I, I create it in novels. And in the world of the novel, those, the concerns of the novel, what's happening, the tragedy that's happening, is all-consuming. It, it's everything. It's all the world is. And I tend to write novels that close out the rest of the world. In this, you have these five characters, these two locations, ten days, and the rest of the world vanishes. The rest of the world is not allowed. And that actually happens for us as a reader, too. I wasn't thinking about anything else except for this <laughs> filthy orchard and these really creepy people that I was kind of stuck being. <laughs> Sorry. The dirt will transfer. <laughs> What this uh, gets to an interesting idea for me is, you know, the kind of uh, your sense of story, because story is how we define ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so um, Galen in here is defining himself, you know, with this with these various stories he's putting together out of the new age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think it's something that everyone does on a daily basis, many times a day, that we create stories about ourselves and our life uh, that, that for each one of us makes our life meaningful and uh, bearable. Uh, and I think that we need these stories, and that if the stories break down, if we can't make a consistent narrative of who we are that makes sense and it's okay, that we're in real trouble, that that's really the definition of a of personal crisis would be that. And so Galen is, and anyone involved in the New Age, is engaged very actively in this project. In a way, you could see the New Age as a as a kind of externalization of what we're all going through anyway inside. Within the New Age, people talk with each other about the life lessons they're learning, and they think that it's real in the world, that that they're actually interacting with something outside, and, and, and of course it doesn't have that reality. They're, they're completely mistaken. But what they're doing is talking about their interior life to each other. And, and so it's kind of useful in a way. It's kind of like group therapy. But it's just weird how no one will admit that they're in it, <laughs> that the new age. Or <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, your novel is a fine externalization itself, uh, in mm -hmm. a sense, of the new age. Yeah, I... I hadn't ever planned to write about the New Age, but I realize now it was such an important part of of who I was and and who I became and who I didn't become and how I had to find out what I wasn't. It in the process of becoming an adult and individuation, all that, the New Age was my great disappointment. It it was my uh, it was as far as I was able to go in that childish belief, the end of childhood, of believing that the world has me at its center, and then I had to transition into an adult life 
of realizing that's not the case. And so you could see the book that way, that essentially she wants to keep him as a, as a replacement spouse, and that's part of how he's not able to move into adulthood, part of how he's stuck in childhood. And that's a big part of what the book's about, is a, an, an arrested uh, development, uh, being stuck in adolescence, childhood and adolescence. Now, you said you were working on a novel set in 1080. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, I ended up not writing it. I ended up writing this one in, instead. Um, uh, are Dirt. you going to go back to that? I may. Uh, what I wrote after Dirt uh, is called Goat Mountain. It's also set in California, another hot burning landscape. Uh, but this is uh, just four characters on a mountainside for two and a half days on a hunting ranch. So it's even more focused, and there, there's no human habitation anywhere. It's just four people on a mountainside. Uh, and so that's as bare as, as it can get, and I really enjoyed that. And um, then the next one after that that I'm working on now, uh, so Goat Mountain will come out a year from now, uh, but the next one I'm working on after that goes far, far back in time. And the one after this, if this one succeeds, uh, might be the Anglo-Saxon one. Now, um, you know, as you talk about this, and I mentioned this about this book, um, seems like these could be stage plays. Have you thought about uh, writing for the stage? Uh, I have. I, I actually, my mentor at Stanford, John Lerer, taught plays a lot, and really a lot of his sensibility or his aesthetics in talking about fiction, about how short stories worked and novellas, came from theater, and, and he loves theater. And I had also acted. So a lot of my background is theater, and, and I love novels that, are, uh, that, that have a, a tight, dramatic core to them, uh, as a play would have. Um, I don't imagine actually writing for the stage just because I don't like working with other people, and I don't like how they fuck everything up. I, you know, on the stage, there'd be actors who would do a bad job of it. I just don't want to experience that pain. You know, in a novel, I can have perfect actors. They'll follow my every command, and uh, that's much better. So maybe I'm, I'm completely like that New Age person still. I still want the world myself. I essentially do not want to play with other people. You know, I don't, I don't want anyone to have any power over me. I don't want to participate in any kind of collaboration with anyone um, because I just I, I don't like the work that anyone else does. I was going to say, your new age beliefs are showing through. I know, I know. There's a strange <laughs> consistency, isn't there? The selfishness has simply taken another form. Uh, as long as it produces novels like this, I'm happy. <laughs> Thanks. I've been speaking with David Van. His new novel is Dirt. Thank, Thank you for joining you. me, David. Thanks, it was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.